Thanks, buddy. So, uh, so four, 486 years ago, this year, actually, uh, something really small but meaningful happened in the heart of uh, the Alps of, of Northern Europe. It didn't seem like much at the time. In fact, uh, probably very few people outside the immediate region maybe even took notice of it when it happened. When in 1536, the city fathers of the mountain town of Geneva, Switzerland, uh, picked a brand new town motto, and in Latin that motto was post tenebras lux, which uh, means in English, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. And just, now just by itself, it was no big deal, uh, and for our purposes, probably not even the answer to a trivial pursuit question, uh, except for one thing, except for the fact of the dramatic spiritual change that it represented, the change in the hearts of the people of Geneva whose hearts and minds had steadily been being reformed by the light of the Reformation and by the brightness of the gospel whose flames had set the town on fire for Jesus. Uh, after the, the darkness uh, of centuries of spiritual blindness in the shadow of the medieval papacy and, uh, and the gloom of its kind of forgiveness for hire and works-based salvation, that really kept the people in bondage to the brutal empire of Rome, which just like the original Roman Empire of the first century uh, in Israel continued to impose uh, their imperial cult through uh, sycophantic bureaucrats, uh, exorbitant taxation, and, and an army of cheering minions who blindly did whatever they were told because they were too terrified to think for themselves. And, you know, and in many ways our current era is not much different than that, is it? Uh, you know, the players have changed, but the corruption and the oppression of the world and of the cultural elite remains the same. And so I don't know about you, but I think because of that, we could all use a fresh dose of that same gospel looks, right? That same light uh, into our world and to brighten the, the tenebras, the darkness of this wicked world that we've been living in. And so I want us to go all the way back uh, to the source of that gospel light, uh, to the very base of the backstory of the hope that lifted the citizens of Geneva and those Swiss Alps almost five centuries ago, and the light from it that tracks like a laser beam straight to our lectionary text today that we're going to be looking at. Uh, and it's a reading that also has, uh, like Geneva, to do with a mountain range and a dark world, uh, a bright light and a spectacular view. But for our cases, instead of it being the cantons of Geneva, we're going to be looking at the mountain of transfiguration. And instead of that panoramic view of the Alps, we're going to be seeing the sweeping vista of the whole salvation narrative. And in place uh, of the light of doctrinal darkness, I want to show you the light that woken up doc, uh, dark hearts. And to do that, we're going to be looking at the blinding light of the divinity of Christ shining through the face of Jesus uh, that really puts a new lease on life and gives to all of those who are looking to him for enlightenment, the peace of the gospel. So uh, rub the sleep out of your eyes this morning. Uh, give the Holy Spirit your full attention, uh, and maybe he'll shake loose some of the shadows from your heart and mind uh, while together uh, we look at his word. And maybe you'll be surprised at what will shine through. And so we're going to be looking at this story in two different places. I remember I told you the lectionary primarily this year has to do with the Gospel of Luke, so we're going to be looking at that. But I'm going to pick up the, the meat of this story from the Gospel of Mark. So if you're following along in your Bibles, which I hope you are, we're going to be turning first of all to Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 2. So this is Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Mark tells us, Six days later, 
Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, and he said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, this story in the gospel of the transfiguration of your son. But we ask, Lord, even more that you would send us uh, your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Uh, that you would uh, take out hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. That you would open eyes, that you would unstop ears as your gospel is proclaimed. And we trust all of these things into your hands because we want to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So on this particular day we read about, as he's done several times before, Jesus took uh, the three disciples of his inner circle, Peter and James and John, on a hike up a tall mountain. Uh, and at first the disciples may have thought uh, this was just another one of Jesus' prayer retreats because it wasn't unusual, if you remember as we've been tracking along, to see Jesus withdraw from the crowds uh, and to find a secluded place to pray alone. And sure enough, that's exactly what Jesus did when they reached the top of this mountain, too. He prayed just like always. Until suddenly and unexpectedly, this event wasn't just like always because something spectacular happened. And as they watched, Jesus' clothing started to shine with a, a white as brilliant as a flash of lightning. And then as the disciples kind of shielded their eyes, they saw that Jesus' face was, was shining with a sunlit intensity. But not because of any external light source. The light was coming from within Jesus himself. And his clothes were, as the text said, whiter than any earthly bleach could make them. And Vicki and I were, were talking about this. Every, every time I, I read this story, I think of the time when Vicki and I were first married. We got a chance to, to take a vacation to Cancun. We actually won the trip. Uh, and, and during our stay, we took this day trip into the, the Mayan ruins and the pyramids of Chichen Itza. And it was kind of a, a long, really winding ride into the countryside and the jungle. It was, was beautiful. But it was surprising, too, because that ride gave us a chance to see the everyday lives of some of the poorest people that you can imagine on the planet. Uh, folks, many of them living in homes that were little more than like three walls and a, a tin roof and, and a dirt floor. But, but what was shocking about it was the laundry that was hanging on the clotheslines. Because in stark contrast to all of those dingy surroundings that they lived in, I mean, some of these shirts and dresses were so white that they hurt your eyes to look at them in the sunlight. They were so, just so crisp and so bright. You could, you could almost feel how clean they were as they kind of swayed in the breeze. And it was an experience that I know I'll never forget because it was really, it was really tactile and, and visual. Uh, but that must have been how it felt for the disciples to go from this very just ordinary day, this ordinary mountain hike, to the most extraordinary of days when the stark brightness of our Lord's appearance provided this glaring contrast between kind of their dingy existence and the transformed lives that Jesus' presence envisioned for them now. 
And here's why I think that's important and why it matters. Because, you know, humanly speaking, no matter how bright and how white we can get clothes hanging on a line, just wearing those clothes don't change the circumstances of the wearers, do they? But the transformation of our Lord Jesus and all of its magnificence pointed to a brilliant future that only he can provide. That only he can give us as the spotless lamb of God who was willingly sacrificed in our place. And I think for the disciples to catch even a glimpse of that reality, it must have been almost unbelievable. But seeing's believing, right? I mean, at least for me, because I've told people this before, I'm a natural born skeptic. Uh, I don't think I have ever uh, just blindly believed anything that anybody has ever told me, no matter who they were. Uh, and on top of that, I, I, I think I'm just a more visual learner in general. Because if you're like me, I always say, don't tell me, show me. Right? If you tell me, I'm not going to get it, but show me. Well, the transfiguration of Jesus would certainly qualify as a really practical, hands-on visual lesson, wouldn't it? And in today's reading, Peter, James, and John are led into a firsthand knowledge of Jesus that they will never forget. Uh, and they come away from this experience with a very real and a very concrete sense of who Jesus is. And for these men gathered on that mountaintop, that reality uh, was inescapable because it was no ordinary uh, conversion. It was a glorious, incomparable, almost indescribable transformation. One that changed Jesus' whole appearance. And for just a moment, the glory of the Godhead shone through and the disciples saw Jesus literally in a whole new light. They saw him as God in the flesh. In fact, uh, the two of them, two of them were so impacted by this, they were still writing about it in their final days on earth. If you look at the opening of John's gospel, uh, the apostle John, uh, when he was close to 100 years old, writing in the first chapter of his gospel in John 1.14, said, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and what we beheld... His glory, right? The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the one I love. Simon Peter, just before he was martyred, wrote about it in the first uh, chapter of his second letter. Second Peter 1, 16 says, uh, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. He says, We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word now more fully conformed to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right? And when you, when you read that, you know, and when he writes that, it's almost as if Peter is remembering that event like it happened yesterday. Right? Because how could you ever forget a moment like that? And the funny part is that's not even the whole story. Because as absolutely incredible as that voice from heaven was, uh, as marvelous as the Lord's transformation was, that wasn't the only thing happening that day, was it? Uh, there, was, there was one more miracle tucked in between those two things, and that was the appearance of Moses and Elijah. As we read uh, in verse 4, when Elijah and Moses appeared, they began talking with Jesus. And, and Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And can you catch how dramatic that must have felt for him? 
Right? I mean, not to mention the fact that Peter somehow recognized who Moses and Elijah were. Right? Despite the fact that by that time Moses had been dead something like 1,400 years. Uh, Elijah had died something like 900 years before that time. But you see, in the presence of Christ, Peter is experiencing a taste of that coming kingdom where the Bible says we will be known even as we are known. Right? That we'll know and be known by everyone. And in fact, in the text, when Peter recognized Moses and Elijah, he was so startled. What was his reaction? His immediate reaction to seeing Jesus transfigured and his face shining like the sun and hearing this voice of the Almighty and seeing arguably the two greatest prophets who have ever lived. He just wanted to build three shelters and three booths and set up camp right there on the mountain. That was it. He didn't need to do anything else. He didn't need to go anywhere else. But why? What was Peter really, really suggesting? What was he thinking in that moment? Well, for one thing, he had in mind the, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, the feast that God had given to his people in the wilderness as a reminder of his provision and his presence. But even more, that feast was a signpost pointing ahead to the day when God promised to live not distant and separated from his people in heaven, but right in our very midst. And right with all of God's people reunited in one coming kingdom with the saints of all the ages past and with the long list of all of our loved ones who have gone on before us and the elect of every nation gathered in the new Jerusalem on that same mountain. That's, that's what Peter was thinking about when he made that request to build those three shelters. Peter was pushing for the millennial kingdom to begin right then. Right? He's ready. He knows that coming promise and he wants the kingdom come to come right now. And who could blame him? Right? Right? Would that Jesus would come back today, right? The only trouble was that Peter, like usual, was jumping out way ahead of God's plan. And running out way ahead of him because, if you noticed, in his eagerness to set up camp, he kind of interrupted a pretty important conversation, didn't he? An important conversation between two pretty important people along with our Lord, between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And wouldn't you just love to know what they were talking about? We'd like to be a fly on the wall to overhear what they said to one another as Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. And, and I know I would, but my wife always says that I'm the most curious person she's ever met. Uh, and that, that's true because, I, you know, the kids will tell you, I'll, well, the first thing I say is, well, what's the story behind that? Uh, I, think, I think that's what she meant by me being the most curious person <laughs> that she ever met. She, we didn't exactly clarify, but I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. Uh, but anyway, I really, I really do want to know what they said. And so for that, we have to go to that piece of the story from the Gospel of Luke that I mentioned. So if you still have your Bibles open, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, just for a quick recap. Jesus took Peter, John, and James up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. And here's where we get to what I'm talking about. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. So now we know what they're talking about, right? They're talking about Jesus' exodus. That's what they're talking about. It says they spoke to him about the exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem, referring, of course, to his death on the cross. Uh, and what's, what's interesting here is that word exodus is never used for death anywhere else in the Bible, but only here. Uh, in the Old Testament, that word for exodus is used to describe the bringing of the children of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. But here, 
Moses, who, who is like bodily representing the Old Testament prophets and promises, spoke to Jesus of a whole different kind of exodus, a greater exodus accomplished by his sacrifice on the cross, which he would fulfill in Jerusalem. Uh, that's really what Jesus did for us, right? He, he brought about our greater deliverance from slavery to sin and our exodus into the promises of God's kingdom. Now, admittedly, the text doesn't tell us the exact words that Moses said to him. But if we use kind of our sacred imagination in this context, Moses could have said something like, you know, Lord, the time's almost here. The time for you to fulfill the whole law, the law that was given to me in the blinding light and the blazing flames of Mount Sinai. The law that requires the death of a substitute for the sinner. Right. The, the law that says in Leviticus 17, 11, it's the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Right? And maybe he said something like, you know, Lord, every ceremony and every type and every sacrifice in the Old Testament, all of it, all of it pointed to you. And now that time is here. And Lord, your death is finally going to give us the forgiveness of our sins that all of these other things only pointed to. We're only a placeholder for. And then there's Elijah who represented the prophecies that looked ahead to the Messiah. And when he spoke to Jesus, he could have said something like, Lord, you know, since the beginning, all of the prophets, including myself, pointed to your work of redemption. They pointed to it through the miracles that you allowed us to do and the, the zeal you gave us for your people and the, and the future hope of salvation that you held out before us. And maybe he said, you know, you foreshadowed uh, our trials in the wilderness and we prefigured your mountaintop experiences and we preached through the light of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Son of God would suffer for his people. Just like the prophet Isaiah said in his scroll, for all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on you, on you, Jesus, the iniquity of all of us. And it's only through your stripes that we're going to be healed. That, that's the kind of conversation, perhaps, that Peter interrupted but then amazingly, even before Peter could finish with his interruption, God the Father interrupted him. Because right? we're told then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly beloved son. And I love this. He said, listen to him. Right. In other words, like Peter, stop talking. Right. Uh, this is my dearly beloved son. Listen to him. And so in the same way the disciples had known that it was Moses and Elijah that they were looking at, they knew who was speaking to them from the clouds, right? They didn't have to ask. And they knew that they were in God's presence. And that they were in the presence of that same holy cloud that had went before the people out of Egypt. That same cloud that stood over the tabernacle in the wilderness. That same cloud that filled Solomon's temple on the day of its dedication so full of God's presence that it pushed everybody else out. And now here they are singled out, Peter, James, and John standing exposed on the mountaintop, knowing that they are sinners standing in the light of pure holiness. And when they heard God speak, they were afraid on a whole lot of levels. But church, the transfiguration story wasn't meant to scare them straight. And it wasn't meant to browbeat them or us either into trusting in and believing in God through intimidation. Uh, Jesus didn't reveal his glory to put the fear of God in his followers, but to confirm their faith and to show his disciples that his words were true. And how do I know that? Well, just look at the end of the story. Look at how quickly 
Jesus came to reassure them and to, to lay his hands on them. And so Peter, James, and John learn hands-on just who this Messiah is. Church, that's what the transfiguration of Jesus is about. Because after that, they knew for sure that Jesus was who he said he was. Now, they still had a long way to go. They still had plenty of things to learn. Uh, but they were so convinced by the miracles and the testimony of Jesus that later, the, after the crucifixion, these disciples would be willing to die a martyr's death rather than deny the light of the truth that they saw. And church, that's what Jesus' miracles mean for us, too. Jesus is showing us that we can believe in his word. And in the transfiguration, he's showing us that he's a God that doesn't hide from his people, but makes the light of his presence known in, in this and a thousand other ways. And leaves no doubt that he is God's son, that he is our Messiah, and that he is worthy of our highest trust and our fullest faith. Uh, and not, not just on the mountaintop days, not just on the days when the sun is shining and the birds are singing and miraculous things are happening all around us, but in the hard days and in the hectic days, whether it's from the weight of work or, or worry or the wickedness that we see around us in this dark world. Uh, and the last verse of today's text really proves that when we read, suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus with them. They saw only Jesus because church, that's all they needed. And now they knew that, right? Now they knew they wouldn't have to climb mountains anymore to be with God. Not, not literal mountains to, you know, try to get closer to God in some kind of hilltop shrine physically. But they also wouldn't have to climb any metaphorical mountains either with just lumps and lumps of commandments to follow and religious obligations to try to fulfill. Because Jesus was right there with them all along. It also proved that they would no longer need an earthly priest to help them to the heights of obscure prophecies or human teaching. Uh, the days of needing a Moses or an Elijah in between us and God are past. And now they saw only Jesus because church Jesus is all we need. That's all we need. And now they realize that they could reach out to him directly. And better yet, Jesus reached out to the disciples. And he reaches out to us today because we have that same blessed hope. We have that light at the end of the dark tunnel of all this terrifying stuff that's happening around us. And all the stuff that happens in our lives and all the stuff that we struggle with thinking somehow we're separated from God uh, that keeps us in fear of death and hell. But brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, the Bible says one day that transformation is coming for you, too. That's our hope. That's our blessed transformation, whether it's at our physical death or at our Lord's eminent return. As first Corinthians says, Paul writing says, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies can't inherit what will last forever. But he says, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we'll all be transformed. And it'll happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. And then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, so my dear brothers and sisters, and I say to you, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for nothing you do for the Lord is ever in vain. 
That's the light and the promise that I want to leave you with today. That's the hope that Christ left in the hearts of his people. And that's the heat beneath the flames of the Reformation. That's the spark that lit the hearts of the people of Geneva as they stepped out of the, the darkness of the world and into the light of our Lord, into his redeeming love. So the church, regardless of the struggles today, we don't give up. And we don't pull back and we share the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ that illuminates the hearts of God's elect for God's glory and for our good. So brothers and sisters, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Our Christ who's shining his blazing presence in your direction today and in my direction. The Lord who is illuminating the dark corners of every heart and who commands everyone, everywhere, repent and turn from your sins. Believe the gospel. Admit that you need help. And be transformed as we pray. Will you pray with me? Father God, we know it's only the illumination of your Son by your Holy Spirit that changes hearts. And so, Father, we ask for that in this moment, that if there's even one among us or uh, listening later online or under the sound of my voice, that you would reach out to them if they don't know you as their Lord and Savior. That you would surprise them, Lord, by the power and the holiness of your presence. Uh, not that they would be frightened, but, Lord, they would just either physically or spiritually fall on their knees before you and say, Lord, uh, I need your help. Jesus, I, I, I want you in my life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open eyes, that you would unstop ears, that you would change hearts today, Lord, through the preaching of your gospel. And we ask, Lord, that you send each of us out with that gospel message uh, to impact uh, all the communities that you're going to be sending us to. And we trust you for all our days ahead in Jesus' name. Amen.